Good morning, everyone. You're listening to It's a New Day here on WFYL, 11.80 a.m. on the dial. My name is Ken Souter, your host over the next hour for a show we call Biblically Speaking, where we talk of the issues of the day from a biblical perspective. I don't think there are too many media outlets really applying biblical principles to the issues of the day, but we are. Uh, But since we are a station that is not only working for your liberty, but talking about things that matter, so that's where we're going to go today. So that's that's it. Let's get started. I want to say, first off, that I have a special guest coming up in about 10 minutes, so you'll want to stay tuned. You absolutely do not want to miss him. Let me just say this, that he and I will be talking about four views of the atonement. Four views of the atonement should be interesting. What about the Bible? This is called Biblically Speaking. The Bible is the most useful and practical book given to mankind. No other book ever has been written that is like the Bible. That's because it's a divine book. It's a supernatural book, a book that God wrote through holy men of old. Second Peter 1 verse 21 says this, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The Bible is true, every word of it, and everything it teaches. It has no errors. It's timeless. It never becomes obsolete. Every word is pure and trustworthy. Where can you find that today? not on the mainstream media. I personally have been reading and studying the Bible for about 45 years now, and I am more convinced of its divine authorship than ever before. The goal of biblically speaking is to tell you the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, as revealed to us in this wonderful book called the Bible. I have no agenda other than the truth. I'm not getting paid by anyone to spin what I say in any one direction or another. I am not beholden to anyone except to the truths of the Bible. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Glory to God. What's the Bible have to do with coronavirus? That's what everybody's talking about today. And it occurred to me, it's interesting, I believe that this is a teachable moment in the history of our country and the world, actually. As folks have been thinking about the virus and how to avoid catching it, I thought about how people are reacting to a virus which only a tiny minority will catch. And of those who do catch it, only a small percent will die from it. Yet the entire world has come to a screeching halt. Trillions of dollars are being spent. War has been declared. People are taking precautions. And life as we know it has been turned upside down. And, you know, I get all that. I'm all in about trying to take precautions and save lives. It's serious. It's a serious matter. Not to diminish it one bit. I pray that it will end soon and that as many lives as possible can be saved. But. What if I told you that there was a plague that everyone has and has a 100% fatality rate, that 10 out of 10 have it and 10 out of 10 will die from it? 
What would you say about that? Shouldn't that be an all hands on deck moment response? Wouldn't that be appropriate? Wouldn't you expect that if it would be subject to almost every conversation, the daily death count on the news, the plague, let me tell you about this plague. This plague takes on average 150,000 people a day. Compare that to the coronavirus. Or about 6,000 an hour. And no mention of it on the news. And frankly, not very much mention of it in churches. Very few churches. Isn't that strange given the reaction to a virus that most will never catch or die from? What is this plague I'm speaking of? Well, it's called sin, and it's something we all contracted at birth. Romans 5.12 tells us that although Adam, through Adam, sin entered the world, and so death was passed on to all men because all have sinned. This passed on sin is known as inherited sin. Just as we inherit physical characteristics from our parents, we inherit our sinful nature from Adam. Just that little innocent baby that you see is born and everybody, you know, it's just a beautiful, beautiful baby. That baby has a sinful nature from birth. Psalm 51.5 says this, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. And also Psalm 58.3 says the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. Lies as soon as they're born. And again, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. This is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. So while the coronavirus is causing us great fear for our very lives, realize that you probably will not die from it. On the other hand, what I have been speaking of here is something you really should be worried about, for it is in you now. The only question is not if, but when it will take its toll on you. And that's where I'm going to bring in my special guest today, Mark Lefford. Mark, are you there? Mark, are you there? Oh, sorry, Ken. Yes, I'm here. Uh, yeah. Thanks for having me. Sorry, I had my phone on mute. No, no, no problem. Um, uh, you're a student of God's Word, and you know we're talking about sin and 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 all of that. I haven't really gotten into it much, but but you know we're all infected with this incurable disease called sin. Uh, and if so, is there a cure? Is there a remedy? And and what would you say about all this? Well, absolutely, yes. There is a remedy, and God has prescribed the remedy in his word, and that remedy would be the the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that there's forgiveness in him. And I think um, this subject came to my mind last week, as many um, would recognize um, what they call Good Friday last week, that Christ died. And I think also, though, it's very common for professed Christians and, and Christians to say 
that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, meaning that there's forgiveness and salvation in what Christ did on the cross. But yet, I believe that few really understand what that actually means. Well, and so I think, yeah, what, what does that mean? Yeah, so to understand what, what it means, it's often helpful for us to understand what it doesn't mean. Uh, and this is a very important way that the Bible is training us to think. You know, it's interesting that more than uh, 1,700 times in the New Testament, that's 1,700 times that the, the, the word not, N-O-T, shows up in, in the New Testament. And there's only 364 chapters in the New Testament. And so you see that the Bible's consistently showing us what something is. At the same time, it's showing us what, it, what it's not. And uh, it's interesting, in John's Gospel alone, the word not shows up 300 times. And John's Gospel is uh, filled with many words that Christ uh, spoke. And so I fear that many are not truly understanding what it means that Christ died on the cross. One, because they can't understand what it does mean. More than that, I think it's because many are only taught in generalities, only taught um, in terms of what is generally true and not taught in terms of what is specifically true. Um, so both of those, you have to understand truth in its specifics, and through understanding the truth in its specifics, then what is false will become much easier to identify. The sad part is many will hear a, a biblically sound sermon and, and say amen, and then they'll go home and turn on their TV and turn on some heretic like T.D. Jakes or Creflo Dollar or some other heretic, and they'll say amen to him too. So they'll say amen over here to the truth, and then at the same time, they're agreeing with them. that is very sad that, that that doctrine and theology has been left to the wind and left only to general principles instead of understanding what the Bible is specifically teaching about these things. We could think about this even in our secular jobs. I mean, I would not move ahead and neither would you in the business you're in, whatever business you're in, if I only understood my job in generality, right? Or if I didn't understand how not to do it, then certainly um, I would not uh, advance. And um, so people in their secular jobs will sweat and, and bleed and, and will take long hours to learn things and to advance themselves. But when it comes to the Word of God, particularly, this all-important of knowing how we are forgiven through the death of Christ, people just think that they can know a few little cliches, and we're good, right? Mm -hmm. That's a very uh, sad situation. Yeah, for sure. So what I... Um, 
did a study on looking at the false views of what we call the atonement is what Jesus Christ did on the cross. The word atonement is used often in the Old Testament when it relates to the sacrifices that, um, you know, the, the day of atonement in Leviticus uh, 16, that, that, meaning that the blood of the animal, which represented Christ, they were um, the... payment for sin, they represented the legal payment for sin, which was pointing to Christ. So I found this um, definition, which I think it will help us, of atonement in the 1828 Webster's Dictionary, since we're looking at four, we'll actually look at five views of the atonement, if we can get it in that time. But the, the word atonement uh, means this, and this is what the 1828 Webster's Dictionary says. It says expiation, satis satisfaction, or reparation made by giving an equivalent for an injury or by doing or suffering that which is received in satisfaction for an offense or an injury with for. In theology, the expiation of sin made by the obedience and personal sufferings of Christ. Expiation is the act of atoning for a crime, the act of making satisfaction for an offense by which the guilt is done away and the obligation of the offended person to punish the crime is canceled. And I think we can all understand that, that when we violate the civil law, that there's a penalty that must be paid. We all have a sense of justice. And um, and that's what the word uh, propitiation means there in Romans 3.25. It says that God made Christ a propitiation for our sins, or that um, it says um, exactly in that text in Romans 3.25, by whom, by whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. So by having faith in what Christ has done, that in detail and what that means specifically. So what we'll do is first look at uh, four false views of the atonement, and then look at the true biblical doctrine of the atonement. So the first uh, view that is false, that is very common, I would say it's probably the predominant view of people to be Christian. The predominant view, because it's held by Roman Catholics, it's held by the majority, if not all, of the mainline denominations, such as the United Methodists, the Evangelical Lutherans, the Presbyterian PC, the PCUSA, the Episcopal Church, American Baptists, and many other denominations hold to this first view of the atonement. And this view is that it's called the moral example that Jesus Christ, when he died, he died as an example, that, that we are to look to him and see what a great moral uh, thing that he did, and and that is the meaning of the cross. Now, even though in Roman Catholic theology, 
if you, if you were to read their, their theology, they believe in what they say, the satisfaction theory, which is actually pretty close to the truth, but it's really not taught in their um, false churches, or it's not taught in um, it, it, what, what it... And so since there's so many nominal Roman Catholics, many of them hold to this view that Jesus died as a moral example. And about the turn of the 19th century into the 20th century, uh, many of the liberal theologians that had infiltrated the mainline denominations started promoting this idea that Jesus Christ died solely as an example to show us what love looks like. And, um, and that, that is really how the liberal theologians interpret all of Scripture. Uh, but we should know also and understand that there are two common uh, things with all errors, two commonalities. And one is that, that there's always a little bit of truth mixed in with error. And secondly, there's, there's many variations. Usually when you find an error, and, and I think you know this, Ken, that, that in any doctrine, it's not, there's many different um, angles that you can look at it from. There's many different uh, variations of that. Um, and we find that also here with this uh, moral, um, this moral example that people say that Jesus was when he died on the cross. So, and for time's sake, I won't get into the variations or, or the, um, or, or how the, the truth is mixed in with it. Although, other than to say, we, we know that Christ is our example, right? Mm. But he's much more than that. First, if you're not in spiritual union with Christ, then as much of an example as he may be, it doesn't matter. It's all in vain if we don't actually know him and are uh, made alive through the power of the Holy Spirit. Mm. So that's the first one. And actually it's, it's the most predominant one. Um, I don't know if you wanted to say anything about that, about Christ being our moral example. I think that kind of works itself out in, in, in our society and that we do this social, social justice. We help others and feed others and, and that sort of thing. And, uh, in a sense, people are working their way in a, in a way towards uh, redemption and, and forgiveness. Exactly. Yeah, that's what it, that's what it boils down to. Is that mm. if Christ is just our example, then really we're forgiven by what we're doing, not mm. by what He did. Mm. And, and that's the common link between all of the false views. All the false views are man-centered. And the true biblical view is God-centered. What I mean by man-centered is uh, something that we're doing or have done to obtain God's favor. Where there again, God, uh, what you say is if we know what's not true, we can we can quickly identify what is true. So, yeah, that's I found that to be true as well. That is, that is prevalent in just about every every church today. Mainline churches, I should say, <laughs> not every church. So I'd like to read this quote by Kenneth Copeland to show how dangerous this doctrine of Christ paying the ransom to the devil is. 
And this, this is, and I quote, he said this, On the cross, Jesus was separated from the glory of God. He allowed himself to be sin for us, and he became obedient to death. To the and suffered there as though he was the one who had committed the sin. He, Jesus, accepted the sin nature of Satan in his own spirit. And at the moment that he did, he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You don't know what happened at the cross. Why do you think Moses, obeying the instruction of God, hung the serpent up on the pole instead of a lamb? That used to bug me. I said, in the world would he want to put a snake up there, the sign of Satan? Why didn't he put a lamb on that pole? And the Lord said, because it was the sign of Satan that was hanging on the cross. He said, I accepted in my own spirit death, and light was turned off, wow. end quote. This is, this is blasphemous. That he's saying that Christ took on himself the nature of Satan, mm. and then the doctrine also teaches that Jesus went into hell, and it was not Christ satisfying the Father's justice, but it was Christ actually satisfying the devil. Um, and this is um, so uh, wicked. And this may sound abhorrent uh, or, or outside of the norm, but this view, this doctrine was actually um, around the second century, but actually the one who in modern days has um, brought it um back to life, I guess we could say, was Kenneth Hagin, who was called the father of modern Pentecostalism. And many uh, cannot discern this damnable her heresy from the truth of the Bible. But not, the Bible never speaks of the Lord nor the Father paying any debt to the devil. The devil has no legal authority in heaven. And for anyone to believe and to teach that he does... Hmm. I really don't believe how they can be Christian. Yeah. Because um, this idea comes from their perception that God is not really any more powerful than the devil. Isn't that right? Or, or the yeah, devil no, has legal authority. Absolutely. Absolutely. The debt is not owed to the devil, it's owed to God. Amen. Mm. And to say that it is owed to the devil is to make the devil at least equal to God, if not higher than God. Dare I even say that, but that's that's where the doctrine leads you, if you follow it. Um, and there are variations of this false doctrine that don't sound as bad as Copeland's version, but are just as dangerous, because at the heart of this false doctrine, these false teachers, teachers are dealing with the legal aspects of salvation. And the legal aspect of salvation is, is where our understanding of the cross must start. Mm. And to get it wrong here is to get the whole thing wrong. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Apostle Paul in Romans uses more than 80 legal terms in the first six chapters explaining to us forgiveness and salvation. And to get it wrong in the legal aspect is to get it wrong altogether. Mm -hmm. um, but... But let's move on, um, if you would, uh, to the the, um, the third um, doctrine that I would believe is um, now. This one's 
false. I don't I don't know. And, and there could be a difference here. I, I wouldn't necessarily call it heretical, but you know, this is the doctrine that many of the uh, free will people adhere to. People that believe that um, we're saved, uh, our salvation is initiated by our decision. Um, that's a whole other conversation in and of itself. But it's the it's the doctrine called the unlimited atonement. Oh yeah, when the Lord Jesus died. He died for the actual sins of every person mm -hmm. that has ever lived and that will ever live. And um, this is um, um, it, a little a little tricky because um, the gospel call goes out to all men. And the what Christ did on the cross, and this is how the reformers would say it, many of them, that what Christ did on the cross was sufficient for all men, but is only efficient for In other words, sin, one sin has an infinite consequence to it, right? Therefore, Sins have the equal consequence of God's eternal damnation. When Christ died, he died um, for that infinite debt. But at the same time, he died for the sins of his people. And that can get um, a little tricky there, which I don't want to get too much into uh, for time's sake. But we can say that Christ died for the sins of his people, that, that the atonement is limited to Christ. It's limited to what he did on the cross for his people. And to say that, that Christ died for all the sins of everyone who's ever lived, I don't see how that can't lead you to um, universalism. Well, that's the, that, that absolutely is where it leads. There's no question about it. I don't know how you could ever think otherwise. And uh, really, it really makes the atonement of, of no effect. I mean, it's only effective if I decide to be effective. And uh, that's the major problem I see with that. It makes forgiveness potential. It makes it doesn't it doesn't mean that you're actually forgiven. It means mm -hmm. that you can potentially be forgiven. And then you're right, and, it, and then it backs you up to man's decision being mm -hmm. the deciding factor instead of God's will. And yet um, I think probably a large percentage of churches believe that today. Christians believe that. It's, it seems to be the prevalent one out there, as you said. Absolutely. Yeah, amongst <laughs> Roman Catholics, which we don't even consider Christian, obviously, but they, they would still fall within Christendom, I guess. Mm -hmm. But they, uh, besides the Roman Catholics and the mainline denominations, which have all but apostatized, uh, but outside of those, I, I would agree with you that, that this is the predominant view, mm -hmm. that the unlimited atonement, that Christ died for the sins. And say, well, what about John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? Or in First John two two, that he died for 
not our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world, it says in First John 2, 2. So what do you do with those texts, I think, is a legitimate question. And I think it's evidently clear what they're saying, what, what those verses are saying, is the fact that Christ died for all people groups. I mean, there's this constant tension through the first century of between the Jews and the Gentiles. Right. In Acts 15, when, when they met at the Council of Jerusalem, the, the, the top issue on the top of the docket was this issue of how are we going to bring these Gentiles into the church? And even mm. some of the top leaders in Jerusalem were a little confused on that. And we're thinking that they still had to be circumcised in order to be brought in. And thank God that, that, that the Lord Jesus revealed to the Apostle Paul that, no, it's by grace, and that these Gentiles don't need to be circumcised to be brought into um, Christianity, true Christianity. But the... Uh, see it almost in every book of the, of the New Testament. So when John is saying it's not for our sins only, he's writing in the first century when there's 120,000 Jews who are born again in Jerusalem. It's not for us only, but it's for the sins of the whole world that that the Gentiles uh, would be brought in. And um, if you're not understanding the New Testament um, and seeing that struggle between the Jews and the Gentiles, you'll miss that. But it's clearly there. So it's like for all classes of people, not all people in total. Exactly. And John, yeah. you know, uses nine different Greek words when he uses the word world. Mm-hmm. And if you used, if you took the word world and used it for every person that's ever lived, every time John uses it, it would get ridiculous. I mean, at one point, the Pharisees said about Christ, the whole world goes after him. Now, certainly, when they were saying that, they weren't thinking about every single person that's ever lived is going after Christ. Right. They were right. saying it in the sense that there was a large group of people going after him. And yeah. so um, you can't um, – and even we use that word in, in, uh, in the same context at times mm-hmm. when we say world. We don't mean every person that's ever lived. And so um, Christ died for every people group, for the – for the Gentiles, for us, by his grace, praise his name. Mm-hmm. So that brings us to our uh, fourth false view, um, which is called the governmental theory. Um, a lot of people aren't familiar with this, but it's actually quite popular. Um, it was made popular, and this surprised me when I studied this, that it was made popular by actually Albert Barnes in um about the middle of the 19th century. Um, are you familiar with Albert Barnes? Oh, yeah. I uh, use his commentary quite a bit. I do, too. But I've been thinking about, um, I don't know how I'm going to use it, because this governmental theory teaches that Christ died not to pay for sin, but to satisfy God's governmental law. Not- ooh, ooh, ooh. I haven't heard of that one. <laughs> Yeah, look it up. It, it, it's very interesting. And the amount of men that believe it, I was surprised. And it, and it really is a way 
of getting around. Um, it's really those that believe in free will, but don't really want to believe in unlimited atonement. Mm-hmm. It's interesting um, <laughs> that God is able to forgive sins, they say, because Christ satisfied what they call the governmental law. Um, and this is um, actually held by, um, like I said, Albert Barnes. It was also this view was held by um, uh, Leonard Ravenhill. Um, actually uh, promoted this theory. Wow. Um, wow, that's so, very subtle. That's a very subtle twist on everything, isn't it? I mean, I that is just amazing. I never heard that one before. Yeah, it's called the governmental theory that, that Christ mm-hmm. died. And, and it's the difference, too, if you dig into it, the difference between expiation and propitiation. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. Um, Ken, you know, in the in the newer versions of the Bible, They'll use the, they'll replace the word propitiation with expiation because propitiation means to actually pay for sins. Okay. But expiation means to satisfy a broken relationship. Oh wow, that is a difference. Yeah, um, and so even in even even in Romans three twenty five, that text we read earlier that um, they'll use the word expiation there instead of propitiation. Mm -hmm. Christ died to reconcile us to God, to fix the broken relationship, which it is true that God did do that, but but that Christ did do that, but he did it through propitiation, through actually atoning, paying the legal debt for sin, which would bring us to the fifth view, which is the correct biblical view, which is what's called penal substitutionary atonement, or often it's just referred to as substitutionary atonement. And this is the true doctrine that teaches that when cross of his own volition to bear the actual punishment of the sin of all of those who would be saved, and that in doing so, he fully satisfied the Father's just and holy demands for sinners to be reconciled to God. And really, there's two aspects, two main headings to um, substitutionary atonement. One is forgiveness, that we're forgiven through Christ at the end of Romans 3. But then in Romans 4 and Romans 5, we have the doctrine of imputation which is included in this doctrine, and many people never even come to imputation or don't even understand what it means to have the imputed righteousness of Christ. So maybe that would be a good thing to elaborate on a little bit there, because I think most people think, well, my sins are forgiven, and that's the extent of it, which is which is great in itself, but that's not the end of it. That's not really all that happened. Right, that's only half the equation, hmm. because um, that not only is um, in, it, what does it say, in Romans 4, where it covers the doctrine of in- imputation so thoroughly, in Romans 4, 5, it says, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on his faith is counted for righteousness. And that word impute or counted or reckoned is used in Romans 4, 
eight different times. So you see that that's the that's the um, primary uh, principle in Romans four is that Christ's perfect life, his perfect obedience to the law, was imputed to believers, and, and it is called the it's called double imputation. In other words, the in Romans five was imputed to us, right? That we were born in Adam's sins. But now when we're born again, Christ's righteousness is imputed to those who believe. So there's two sides to it. On the negative side, I have this infinite debt that I cannot pay. And yet Christ paid that debt on the cross because our sin was imputed to him. For he who knew no sin became sin, that the righteousness of God um, might be. Oh boy, I'm miss. I'm missing that verse. I must be getting old, Ken. I can't, believe I can't quote Second Corinthians five twenty one. That's one of my favorite verses. He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Right. It's one of the key texts in the whole New Testament mm. to understand the gospel, is it not? Yeah, it is. So there's the double, the double imputation. Our sins imputed to Christ, his righteousness imputed to us. And that's a little different from what the Roman Catholics believe uh, with infusion of righteousness. Isn't that true? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> and, it, and it happened in the um, Protestant churches also because they can justification with justification. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm shocked and, and so concerned about people who have been coming into the church and under the teaching, and, and that's very encouraging. But many of them, I'm finding, can't make that distinction in their minds between justification and sanctification. And they're still thinking that justification is a... righteousness, even though they might use that term, they're still thinking of it in terms, as the Catholics would, the infused righteousness, or mm-hmm. as um, the, the Protestant theologians would call it, an imparted righteousness, in mm-hmm. Romans 6 and 7. But yes, there is an imparted righteousness given to the believer that is a, a, a personal holiness, but that's subsequent, or even consequent to, um, to, to justification. Not my mm. justification. It's the but uh, but imputed righteousness is righteousness that is um, objective. It's outside of me. It's not subjective. It, it's it's um it's a legal thing, they, they, right? It's forensic. It's forensic. Um, exactly. It's mm. legal, uh, um, and so it's the righteousness of Christ that's given as a gift. So just to make it simple for people to understand, it's like you go before a judge and someone, I don't know, maybe I'm going to mess this up, but uh, pays your fine. You are legally free to go, but that doesn't mean that you're not a lawbreaker still. You still will probably go out on the highway and not follow the speed limits exactly. You might go over the speed limit or, or continue on doing the same thing, even though you are legally, um, yeah, that's that particular fine has been paid. Is that, is that, would that be close to what you're talking about or? 
Um, well, there's, I think the easiest way maybe to understand it, like I mentioned a minute ago, is you have the negative side. And I think, I think that is right, what you're saying. But the negative side is that we have a debt that needs to be paid. So the law works in two ways. It for also commands me to do certain things that I haven't done. You know, we would call it sins of commission and sins of omission. Mm-hmm. There's things that I've done that I should not have done. And there's things that I should have done that I haven't done. And so the law works both ways. Right? When the law says, thou shall not lie, it's not only telling me that I, that I shouldn't tell lies, but it's telling me to speak the truth, right? Yes. So I need forgiven in the sense that I have done what I should not have done. But I need righteousness in the sense that I should have obeyed when I have not. And so in both of those aspects of, um, of salvation are in Christ and in different ways are connected uh, to the cross. Uh, the primary one, though, being the atonement, which would be forgiveness, that when, when Christ died, he, uh, he provided the just means by which God can forgive sins. Mm-hmm. And um, it's so um, heavily connected to our understanding of the Old Testament. And, uh, you know, like in Isaiah uh, 53, in that great um, chapter, you know, four through six, where it says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him mm. iniquity of us all. Beautiful. Those verses, whether mm. Old Testament or New Testament, are the mm. on Xbox. Most important verses in understanding the atonement. Amen. Beautiful, beautiful. So. I can hear somebody out there saying, well, does it really matter? I accepted Jesus, and, you know, why do I have to know all this? Does it really matter? Or, you know, do I have to have a seminary degree to, you know, to be a, a fruitful Christian? Is this, you know, why do I need doctrine? I mean, I that's what I hear all the time. You know, doctrine divides. Don't get, don't, don't get hung up on all the details. You know, it's just about believing in Jesus, and I believe Jesus, and so I'm saved. You know, <laughs> right? Like, like I mentioned earlier, though, try to tell that to your boss when you go into work. He, he tells you what to do, and he has specific instructions for you, and you just say to your boss, "Well, you know, I don't. I just do it how I do it." So God has laid out a very detailed and specific plan, and that that we call the true gospel. And anything else is is not the true gospel, and and could put you in jeopardy of not even being saved. Amen. It, it doesn't work in the natural world, and it definitely doesn't work in the spiritual world. It, it, God has given us reasoning minds for for a reason, um, and we are able to. To understand, uh, and some men may do that. I mean, even doing my studies to prepare for this, 
I mean, some guys write hundreds of pages on, on some of the stuff that, that can boggle your mind, but, and, and certainly we don't need to go that far, but can't we at least understand the, the, the basics of what it means to, mm-hmm. to um, believe on what Christ did on mm-hmm. the cross and when he shed his blood and his suffering satisfying the wrath of God and his suffering actually atoning for oh. So I mean, that's really not too hard to understand. And yet, if you ask, you know, I would say 70, 80 percent of the people that say Jesus died on the cross for my sins, they couldn't even get that far. Mm-hmm. And um, it shows, um, too, I think, a lack of the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's working in us. We'll desire to learn these mm-hmm. things, will we not? And mm-hmm. we'll desire to learn them. Or but... Um, I feel our time is short. It, it, how much time do we have? We have about uh, 10 minutes or so, Mark. Oh, so okay. you, we can apply some of this or go wherever you want to go, right? Whatever you want to say. Okay. What's, what's on your heart? What's, what's burden you about all this? I mean, I know I, I know you're a man of God's word and you study these things. And, you know, what would you want the church to do these days? Um. Seeing uh, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, I think that the, the the major difference between the and really there's the false view and there's the true view, mm-hmm. and, and it's like that with every doctrine. Every doctrine you might have like twenty different false views, but they're all really the same. And then you have the true, and it. views that we could talk about, but really, they all narrow down to the same thing, that man can do something to save himself. And the true doctrine of the atonement is telling us there's nothing we can do to save ourselves, but that the Lord Jesus Christ is our only hope. Mm. So I... Uh, when you say I can't do anything, um, can I make a decision? You know, well, you hear so much about make a decision. I made a decision for Christ. What is that? What? How do you? How do you process that? <laughs> well, I think John one twelve and thirteen. John mm-hmm. one twelve says, "To as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God." even to them that believe on his name. So there's, there's a, in a sense, a verse saying that you should receive Christ. But then the next verse clarifies it and says, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So there in verse 13, it says, which were born. The word were puts verse 13 chronologically or in time, before verse 12. So yes, receiving Christ or believing on him, trusting in him, and, 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 and yes, that is a decision. But you can't make that decision. You can't make that choice unless God does something first. Right? Because we're, sin is a condition of death. Sin is, um, is that we were born into this, uh, as Romans 8, 7 says, we were born at Bill, that's the essential problem. 
Mm-hmm. And many people will say, well, I love God and I've always loved God. But really, they've only loved the God of their own imagination. They have not loved the God of the Bible because that's impossible. Here it is love in First John 4.10. Not that we love God. So the first, uh, the first point in understanding God's mm-hmm. love is to know that without him loving me, I don't love him. I can't love mm-hmm. him. Mm. He does something. So um, understanding the true process of how salvation works doesn't eliminate our decision, but it just shows us that it's only by the power of God was I ever able to make that decision because I can't choose outside of my nature, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, we're dead in trespasses and sins, and I don't know of a dead man that's ever done anything. You can sit next to a casket and talk all day till you're blue in the face and ask that man to come out of the casket, and he will not do it because he's dead. He's dead in his trespasses and sins, and that's what Ephesians tells us. And, Amen. Um, and in terms of a choice, I always go to John fifteen sixteen. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you. Uh, that you should Amen. go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. Now, some say, well, that was only to his disciples he was talking to. But, um, yeah, there's many other scriptures uh, that you, you could use to say that, you know, we love him because he first loved us. Everything is God takes the first action. He has to. Amen. Amen. And even in John 10, where he says, my sheep hear my voice, which is the only true assurance we have right after he says that. He says, and no man shall pluck them from my hand. And then he goes further and says, and no man shall pluck them from the Give them to me. Mm-hmm. So the only assurance we have of our salvation is that Christ called me. The Father chose me and gave me to Christ. And therefore, I can have confidence that, that this is God's work. I mean, if it's based on my decision... That's pretty scary, because one day I'll decide one thing, and the next day I might decide something else. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, if it was up to me, <laughs> True assurance of I, have a, I have a short attention span. I may not be so interested next year, and, and that's also a great comfort for the fact that we can know that uh, we're not going to lose our salvation, um, that you know, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and, and none of them I shall, shall be cast out. Um, which is just tremendous uh, assurance, uh, which is a problem. If you have these other understandings of the atonement, it, it it does impact other areas of your faith, such as, you know, eternal security and, and those sorts of things. And so it's, it's, it is important. It all works together uh, into one beautiful uh, doctrine of, uh, of salvation. Amen. Amen. That's so, so true. It's all woven together. It's all woven together. Beautiful tapestry. Mm -hmm. And I think only under the biblical model of substitutionary atonement can the psalmist say, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath my sin Mm -hmm. removed. That's the only way he could say that. And uh, is that in in Christ, he has removed the debt of our sin through his own blood, through his own suffering. And when he drank that cup, that he spoke of in the garden. He drank the full cup of the Father's wrath for this. And I praise his name. We can have confidence in Christ knowing 
that our sins are forgiven in him, mm-hmm. not through any other uh, means. Yes, very good stuff, brother. I I, uh, <clears throat> I do appreciate your, uh, your study of this, and I know you've written... Uh, something on 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 this, or was it just on salvation in general? Maybe you might want to mention some of those things and um, how you might be able to get avail of it, or how they might get in touch with you. Actually, if they've been listening to the show today and they fit, I've never heard this in my church before, and I'm interested in knowing more. Um, you know, how would they get in touch with you? Well, I've written a lot of blogs, and I've written about the atonement on um, at least one of my blogs, but um, in my booklet I wrote about on evangelism. Um, touches on these points, um, but if you if you'd want to get in touch with me, um, you can call me. Um, my number is four four three two zero six eight three four six. You can email me um, m leffert l o e f f e r t seven at gmail dot com. I pastor a church in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania, uh, called Free Grace Bible Church, and. Uh, Praise the Lord. He's he's working there and, and drawing people. It's a church plant work of Reformation Bible Church in Darlington, Maryland. Um, but please contact me, and I would love to talk to you more about these things. Mm. Okay. Well, very good. I really, again, want to thank you for coming on the show today. I, I think it was extremely profitable. Uh, we did have a little bit of a technical glitch here and there, so you, you're going to hear a little of a, a little bit of a problem along the way. But uh, we didn't miss much, much of it. We just missed a little bit here and there. But I think uh, everybody kind of gets the idea of what you're talking about. And uh, as, they, as I said, they have any further questions, uh, feel free to uh, to reach Mark uh, as he uh, indicated. So. With that, folks, I want to say thank you again for joining uh, Biblically Speaking. Uh, I trust that uh, the Lord has uh, used this time uh, to draw you to him, to open your eyes to his word. And I encourage you to, if nothing else, pick up a good Bible. I recommend the King James Bible uh, and study it and look up some of these verses that we've uh, brought to your attention today and as you can always reach me by reaching the station as well. And I'd love to uh, hook up with you if you have any further questions. But uh, so as for that today, I will just leave you with Hosea 4, 6, which basically says that uh, my people perish for a lack of knowledge. Unfortunately, that is uh, what we have today. Many Christians are not too educated on some of the things and they have a lack of knowledge. Uh, My heart goes out to them, and I pray that uh, this show will stimulate your thinking and your your, uh, your thought process in these things, and that you will uh, be a student of the Word and study the Scriptures, study the doctrines, study the Puritans, read a lot, study a lot, and uh, God will direct you. Jesus says, I will lead them into all truth. And the Scriptures also tell us to study, to show thyself approved unto God. So we are to study the word, not just pick it up and read it every now and then, but to diligently be students of the word. So with that, I'm going to close out the program today. Thank you again for listening. You've been listening to WFYL 1180 AM. My name is Ken Souter, host of Biblically Speaking. And until next time, God bless.